Welcome to the Introduction to Clinical Research podcast. My name is Debbie and I use she, her pronouns. I work in clinical research and I have decided to explain it to my friend Elise. Say hello, Elise. Hello, Elise. (laughs) My pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, And I work in public health, but not in clinical research. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, If you want a full introduction of who we are and why we're here, it's at the top of episode one. So go and check that out. It's Elise from the future again, here to tell you about how you can check out transcripts and other cool information on our website, intro to clinicalresearch.podbean.com. And thanks to Sam Winnie for the use of our intro and outro music. We are here to pull back the curtain on medical research, so hopefully you feel more informed and maybe that you can trust the outcomes of research a little bit more. There is a lot we can discuss, lots of topics, lots of information, so we're going to dive straight in. And today we are going to be talking about the parts or the steps that a drug has to go through to get its approval, and these are called the phases that you may have heard of. So you may have heard like on news reports, um, oh, this study has just finished phase two or whatever. Um, So clinical trials are categorized into one of four phases. One, two, three, or four. Simple, right? Love it. Those phases are typically, typically is a strong word, those of us in the industry denote those four phases using Roman numerals. So phase one is I, phase two is II, phase three is III, and phase four is IV. No, IV is intravenous, Debbie. (laughs) You're not wrong. It's both. (laughs) Okay, great. Rarely there is an additional phase zero also first, but this doesn't always occur. So, simply speaking, you've got phase one to four, slightly complicated by the addition of a phase zero that happens before phase one in some situations. I'll explain why and when in a moment. And additionally, phase two studies are sometimes broken down into phase two A and phase two B. And that's because if you imagine it like um, junctions on a motorway or an interstate, We had phase two, we had phase three, and then they decided that they wanted to break phase two down. They couldn't just stick phase three in. They couldn't just move phase three to phase four. Right. And phase four to phase five, so they made A and B. Two A, two B. To intersect. Exactly. Exactly. Um, What do they call phase zero with Roman numerals? Um, This is a trick question. (laughs) Oh, well played. You've tricked me. They don't. There are no zeros in Roman numerals counting correct okay so we are going to start with phase zero which is a a phase or a type of study that was introduced in 2005 2006 by the fda as a suggestion of something that could be done but it's not mandatory right so it's not a legal requirement that for every study you must do phase zero And when you said, sorry, you probably just said this. You said it was introduced when? 2005, 2006. Okay, okay. Okay. And by the FDA. So this is something done in the States, but not necessarily elsewhere. Yes, correct. It's US-specific categorization. 
which isn't to say that you couldn't do a phase zero study outside of the US, but the suggestion um, to do this kind of study came from the US. And oh, okay. what you need to know, which you probably already know, Elise, you live in America. America is the biggest market for pharmaceuticals, right? So if, as a drug company, you want to make money selling your drug, you're going to want to sell it in America, which means that no matter where your you, your pharmaceutical company may be based, you're going to have half an eye on what's going on in the US to make sure that, that you can meet those requirements. You're also going to have an eye on the Chinese requirements and the EU requirements and, you know, the requirements in lots of different markets because you want to be able to sell your drug everywhere. But the US is an enormous market, so that's definitely going to be on your radar for close scrutiny. But do you, a lot of other <clears throat> markets use, sorry, <laughs> do a lot of other markets use like FDA standards as like the higher side of things? Is this a question that we just need to like throw into a future, like a holding pattern for later? So that like, but basically like, yeah. you know, if it's like, okay, well, we know everyone's going to be playing ball with the Americans. So let's at least try to like match what the Americans okay, are up so to. Here's, or here's is that... my response to that question is how many countries in the world do you know that say, oh, America's law is X, therefore our <laughs> law is X? Because um, I think none is the answer. Yeah, that's true. But there's also like... I don't know. It's it's capitalism, right? Yeah. Like this yeah, is yeah. yeah okay, this so is pharmaceutical short, companies. Short answer: Legally, no. Each country has their own regulations. Long answer, and we will get onto this. I think probably next episode. There is an effort to harmonise the requirements for clinical research, so that if you're doing a clinical study in Europe, uh, in Japan, in America, etc., you're doing it more or less the same. So okay. Um, most research, in my experience, and I've worked uh, all across Europe, I've worked in the US, I've worked in Australia, it's 90-95% the same, no matter what the local regulations say. Phase zero is a particular suggestion made by the FDA of a good idea that you might want to do. And other regulators have other good ideas as well that you may adopt outside of that regulatory environment. But... Phase zero studies are not mandatory. You don't have to do it. So the uptake on phase zero has been lower than some of the other things that other regulators have brought in um, that are requirements. Because if you have to do it, you have to do it. Sometimes what happens is one regulator will bring in a requirement and the other regulators will look at it and go, oh, that's a good idea, and then copy it. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. Thank Phase you for zero studies. Me. <laughs> Back on point. Um, these studies are to try and determine if the drug is safe for humans at a microdose. What that means. During your preclinical testing, you will work out the range of doses that you think is safe to give to a patient to get them the therapeutic benefit you want them to have. If it's one to two milligrams per kilo, for example. That is your range of, I think this is the dose that's going to do good things for our patients, minimise the risk of side effects. Now, it's likely that you'll have a range this early on in development because this is a very early in development clinical study because you haven't yet nailed down what the right dose is. That comes later. If you think your therapeutic dose is like one to two milligrams, 
you will give the patient 0.1 or 0.01 milligrams of the drug. You're not expecting them to get any therapeutic benefit at all. You're not expecting the drug to do anything. You are just trying to see if there's any major red flags. Does anything go disastrously wrong at this microdose? And also, you're going to be collecting data on how the body metabolizes the drug and if the drug does anything to any pathways in the body. So that's pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. What the drug does to the body, what the body does to the drug, PK and PD. And that data is really helpful. Knowing that early on in the development is really helpful because it can tell us if there's any pathways that we've got to be careful about for further development in terms of things like drug-drug interactions or food-drug interactions. And this is this is like grapefruits, right? This is the grapefruit thing. Nailed it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So like, and, and this is uh, something I found out that I guess a lot of Americans don't know this. So if you're listening in America, this is for your information. You should talk to your doctor about this because there's like a metabolic interaction with grapefruit juice, grapefruits, and something that uh, you might know more than me, Debbie, I'm sure you do, um, of like certain drugs metabolize and then grapefruits metabolize in the same pathway and then it interferes with it and you can end up with like toxic levels of your drug doses because I don't I don't remember all the science behind it. But yeah, it's like it can interfere with your drug metabolizing. And so you have to be exactly. careful. So I that. think it's a cytochrome that sits uh, in your intestines um, and a cytochrome. Is it a, That's a, a molecule. Made up word. <laughs> OK, yeah. An, an enzyme that breaks things <laughs> okay. down. Um, Thank you. And. <laughs> Uh, grapefruit juice um, the simplest way I can describe it is imagine it's an enzyme and grapefruit juice fills up the enzyme's receptor site uh, so the drug can't get in to be broken down so if you're imagining it as a taxi going on a journey all of the seats in the taxi are filled by grapefruit juice and none of the drug gets in <laughs> so the drug is just waiting for its lift and it can't it can't get to where I it love wants that. to go so metaphor. it just builds up and builds I up and builds up metaphor. and builds up. And that's why you can end up with a, a toxic overdose if you've just had a bunch of, of grapefruit juice because it blocks the activity of that molecule that would normally break your drug down. Yeah. And I guess other places in the world, doctors and pharmacists tell patients mm-hmm. about this. And in the U.S., people just don't. So this is wild to me. Mm. No comment. I have a lot of comments. Yeah, I can tell. Um, anyway, so phase zero, microdose to get preliminary data on any possible issues with giving this to a patient um, and knowing about the metabolism of it. Okay. The patient population okay. in this early phase study is usually healthy volunteers. So by that, we mean a person without another uh diagnosed condition um the studies are usually very small maybe around 10 patients and very short just a few weeks um the reason i say they're usually conducted in healthy volunteers and this is the same for phase zero phase one which are the healthy volunteer studies Phase zero and phase one studies will be conducted in healthy volunteers unless the indication, the disease that's being treated, is something like cancer, where giving a healthy patient a chemotherapy drug 
is really dangerous and potentially fatal for that patient. I think we've talked about it before, but there's always a risk-benefit calculation when you're developing a drug. For something like a chemotherapy drug, there's a high risk. It has some really nasty side effects. The chemotherapy medication is killing a whole bunch of cells, cancer cells and non-cancer cells. That's why patients' hair may fall out or they may feel nauseous. And basically what we're hoping for is that the cancer dies before anything else really fatal. The benefit is to a chemotherapy drug, this could cure that patient's cancer and allow them to live a long and happy life. For a healthy volunteer that has no cancer, there is no benefit, there is only risk. So the calculation doesn't make sense. Did I explain that well enough in terms of risk benefit yeah, and why? So f- definitely. Yeah. I think that, you know, we've we can go round and round mm-hmm. um the kind of philosophical questions, but we'll just kick them to the ravine. Into the ravine. Where yeah. yes, where they will serve as bait until um such a time as Andy emerges. A swamp monster comes out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we actually discuss things like, you know, because I do I do have questions and concerns around the idea of like how we value life and uh, who's given a choice and who isn't and those kinds of things and what really is consent when you have cancer and other things like that. But those are all very kind of abstract philosophical questions Mm. that would mire us for 30 minutes on phase zero. Um, (laughs) The only thing I would say is uh, participation in research now is always consensual. So by that I mean patients volunteer to participate and they will sign a consent form if they choose to participate. Now, the ability of patients to give consent in different cultural scenarios, including if they have late stage cancer that isn't responding to any other treatments, will definitely, definitely put that into the philosophy ravine and discuss because there is also, there's cultures globally where the patient does what the doctor says. So if the doctor says, I think you should go on this study, the patient's going to do it. Is that consent? That's a good question. I don't have the answer yeah, to that. Totally. Um, I'd love to discuss it, but into the ravine. Later. We'll do it later. Okay. Any questions about phase zero? No. Okay. So microdose, short, small patient, small number of patients, um, usually healthy volunteers. And you're basically trying to get very early data on the metabolism of the drug and any major red flags not mandatory. The first phase that is expected, i.e. is required, uh, still early phase, so very early in the drug development, phase one or phase I, if you're using Roman numerals. These are small studies designed to determine if the drug is safe at the dose that you're expecting the patients to take, not a micro dose like in phase zero. The population of patients is healthy volunteers So similar to phase zero, unless it's a cancer study, in which case it's likely to be cancer patients. Similarly small, probably larger than a phase zero, maybe somewhere between um, 10 and 60 patients and a short duration. Few weeks, few months, I would say no longer than a year, probably. Okay, so quick question. Um, You said that it's administered, the drug would be administered at the dose that you're expecting patients to take. Mm. How would we know the dose we're expecting patients to take if we're in phase one and phase zero is only microdoses? Great. 
You will get data from your preclinical testing to work out what the dose range is. And you may do as one of your phase one studies because you can have more than one phase one study, right? One of your earliest studies will be what's the right dose, okay? Okay, and that's what we talked about with like the... What's it? There's like the minimum to- or maximum, maximum tolerated, tolerated amount, but minimum like kind of effective amount, yes, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So when you're looking at the dose that you're going to give a patient, you want to give them the amount that gets them the best benefit with the least amount of side effects. That's what you're that's what you're looking to hit. Now, every drug has side effects, but you're trying to minimize that and getting the dose right can be a part of that, right? If you give too much of a drug you're more likely to see side effects it's also helpful to know what's the maximum dose that you can give that's the maximum tolerated dose before you start to see uh side effects that aren't acceptable that are outside of your tolerance that's your maximum tolerated dose it's helpful to know that so that you can guide doctors on what might be defined as an overdose and how they may need to treat that so Phase one is a phase of studies and it's often a group of more than one studies. You will have in phase one your first in human study, which is the first time you're giving a therapeutic dose, not a microdose, to a human being. And you'll watch them really closely to check that they're okay. And then you may also have what's called a dose ranging or a dose escalation study, where you are looking at different doses in that window of what you think is the right dose one to two milligrams per kilo for example and you're trying to find the dose that's giving that's that's going to give the best benefit with the least amount of side effects it is not and that's all phase one Yes, dose escalation definitely you would do in phase one because you want to get to that maximum tolerated dose in healthy volunteers. You may also continue to explore your doses when you go into phase two, which we'll get onto shortly, because how a healthy volunteer reacts to a drug is different often in many ways to how a person with a particular condition will react. So just because you've got data in healthy people doesn't mean that the patients with the condition will react the same. So you have to look at it in both. But... You can get your maximum tolerated dose in a healthy person and you're likely to give your patients with the condition less than that. Cool. So, phase one studies, um, less than 100 patients run for less than a year, often much less than a year, only like a few weeks or months. And about 70% of medications continue past phase one i.e. are safe for humans. That's a pretty high conversion rate. Yeah. There are, of course, some that don't. Either because, based on the indication, what you're trying to treat, you know what, we're actually seeing too many side effects. I've got this headache medication, and it's causing more headaches than it's treating. (laughs) Right? Right. Every medication causes headaches. (laughs) All of them. It's always at the top of the package leaflet. Advil causes headaches. Um, I don't know if that's true. (laughs) So, yeah, there are some that fail at that point. And it may be, you know what, we just don't think it's safe enough for what we're trying to treat. Okay, what about, like, it's not safe enough, but it's also like, oh, God, it's really not safe. Like, does that ever come out 
in phase one studies. Yeah, it does, unfortunately. So 70% succeed, um, which means that mathematically 30% fail. And a really small percentage of that 30% fail because they're really not safe. A lot of preclinical research is targeted to try and make sure that if you're taking a drug into humans, these first in human studies, you know in advance that it's probably going to be safe because you don't want to put humans at risk for no reason. That's Nobody's in that game. Well, okay. I'm not in that game. Most researchers that I worked with aren't in that game. But there are some cases where there are disastrous results. And I will give you an example of a drug called theralizumab, which um, was tested in a phase one first in human study in the UK at the Northwick Park Hospital phase one site run by a company called Parexcel in 2006. This drug is a monoclonal antibody. And the idea of it it's, was it was going to modulate or manage immune function. So it could be used to treat leukemia, rheumatoid arthritis, autoimmune diseases. Really good idea, right? It had gone through the normal expected preclinical testing and it was presented to this study of healthy volunteers for phase one first in human testing. At the time the, the protocol was written, there were eight patients, young, healthy males recruited, and six of them would receive the active theralizumab. Two of them would receive placebo, but nobody knew which was which. It's blinded in that way in that nobody knows who's getting what. It's a way of reducing bias. The first patient received the dose. The timer started for, I, I can't remember exactly, it was 30 minutes or an hour. And then the second patient received a dose, 30 minutes or an hour, the third patient, and so on and so on until all eight patients had received active or placebo, depending on what they were getting. Now, very shortly after the first patient received their dose, they started to experience side effects. And initially, not so severe, gradually getting much more severe over time. Let me say up front, uh, all of the patients survived, although some of them did suffer life-changing consequences as a result of this study, and compensation Just having to paid. say that up front, though. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Credit to the doctors who were running the study and the fact that the site was located in Northwick Park Hospital, which is a, a, is a, a big hospital in London, which meant that on site they had an emergency room and they had a whole bunch of equipment that could basically save these patients' lives. Without getting too much into the weeds of the science, essentially what happened is called a cytokine storm. It was an enormous immune overreaction. So imagine an allergy is a reaction to something that you don't actually want that reaction to. Like if you're, if you're suffering at the moment with the hay fever, right? Um, you don't want that. Okay. But that kind of overreaction dialed up to 11. Um, swelling, fever, nausea, vomiting, just a terrible, really, really serious um, set of side effects. The reason that this happened is because of the unanticipated immune action of this monoclonal antibody. Basically, in the human body, 
that molecule triggered an enormous immune overreaction, which is not what we wanted it to do. And the question that I anticipate you asking is, well, how did we not know that that was going to yeah. happen? Yeah, surely this could have been predicted is the kind of the hope, right? That in pre-clinical mm-hmm. trials, the, this there would be an indication that this might be the case. Great. That this could yeah, happen. Yeah, great question. Yes. Unfortunately, the drug is tested in a preclinical environment in animals raised in a laboratory who have an immune system that is not primed. It's not faced infections like you and I have. It's not inhaled pollen at the rate that you and I have. Um, It's naive. (laughs) Which is a lot of pollen, Mm -hmm. yeah. (laughs) It's naive. So that means it doesn't... An immune system in the laboratory doesn't respond in the same way as my immune system, which doesn't respond in the same way as your immune system, for example. So in hindsight, you go, well, obviously... It's going to be yeah, different. Yeah, it's like that kind of does feel like a, well... Right. Yeah. But up until this point in 2006, we had been testing similar molecules without this reaction. So it's a, a really important event in that it affected some, uh, some patients quite severely, um, but it also taught us Wait, a lot. I- yeah. Before you get to like the lessons we learned, I have a question like when so you said it's like 30 to minutes to an hour between when patients are dosed. So like first patient, let's say, gets the not placebo, the actual mm-hmm. drug. Second patient gets the actual drug. Third patient gets placebo. By the time the fourth patient is dosed, that could be up to like that could be minimum, what, like an hour and a half, maximum three or four hours yeah. since the first patient was dosed. Did they continue dosing all the way through eight patients? Yes. Because I think it must have been like a 30 minute window because an hour just sounds too long for like, you're right, seven hours later. Because these these patients, yeah. they start, the, the, the cytokine storm, it didn't immediately, um, it wasn't like naught to 60 in three seconds. It's naught to 60 in an hour. You know, it it really did ramp up and these patients suffered severe side effects, but it wasn't instantaneous. If it had been instantaneous, probably they wouldn't have dosed the second patient. Um, But that's a really good question. One of the things that they learnt on the spot, the doctors on the spot learnt, was something's going on and it's this kind of thing. And therefore we can give prophylactically preventatively some care to these patients so it doesn't get that bad so the first and second patients who received the active dose um were seriously affected because it kind of it got quite bad before they were treated whereas the other patients didn't get as severe so that the consequences weren't as dire if that makes sense okay yeah but yeah they did they did continue and i hope one of the lessons learned could also be like if you're noticing something stop and you can just keep going later if it right if it's not because of this Mm -hmm. i think yeah there were a lot of lessons learned and that is that was definitely one um for monoclonal antibodies now if you dose one patient you wait 24 hours before you dose the next one a lot more yeah i think the reason that it was like a 30 minute or an hour window is normally if you're going to see a side effect in the human body that's bad you're going to see it quite quickly whereas i think this cytokine storm ramped up over a period of a few hours so they were all dosed by the time the first patient 
started to have a bad time or a really bad time, I should yeah. say. But if you'd waited 24 hours, you'd know. So it doesn't it doesn't stop For the sure. fact that that first patient is at risk and has a has some terrible consequences. But it's only one which does minimize the risk. Right. And there's the kind of flip side of like, we literally cannot control for every risk, Mm -mm. right? We do our best. Do they, do, do they introduce less immune naive animals now to these things or is that just not something so, okay I buy for, for those not seeing Debbie's face she gave me a look like how could you do this to me the honest answer is I don't know like that sounds logically like a good thing to do but how do you get a not immune naive animal into a lab do you just go out into the wild and capture them because uh, I was going to, I mean, can you just, I mean, if they need to be exposed to pollen, can you but just how would you know what to expose them to? Time? Because I don't know what you've been exposed to in your immune I know. system. You're right. It's, that's, that is, put it in the philosophy ravine because I promise you if more than three people listen to our podcast, we're going to get a lot of complaints about animal testing, period. Yeah, so. And, and valid, but I, I don't know of another way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We'll put it like in the ravine. Yeah. <laughs> so lessons learned. I already talked about the delay in dosing. Um, one of the other things that was done is phase one units in the UK are now accredited. So they're inspected by our regulator and they have to have certain things on site, including like advanced life support. They have to have a crash cart, basically. Um, so if something goes wrong, no matter where the site is, the patients will be... Um, as safe as they can be in that situation. The the um, the MHRA in the UK, so I can't remember the exact dates, but let's say the event occurred on a Tuesday. The MHRA were on site inspecting on the Wednesday. They were there the next day and the site were really, really transparent because they wanted to know what, what happened and, and how to stop it happening again, just as much as everybody else did. So really terrible, tragic event, but you know, credit where credit's due. There was a good investigation. There were some lessons learned. There were some action items. There's a documentary that I watched when it came out because um, this was early. This was before I was working in the industry, but the kind of the consequences of it were early in my career in 2007. Um, there was a panorama doc- documentary in the UK. Maybe you can get it on YouTube. I don't know. That talks through all of the events in great detail. It is quite... Um, traumatic in some of the medical things that it shows so do be careful if that's going to be uncomfortable for you um but it's it's very interesting and it talks through all of the lessons learned including this unit accreditation including some of the the reviews that are now required by the regulator some of the testing that should be done as much as possible by the pharma companies to try and flag for monoclonal antibodies all of these kinds of measures so yeah the the biggest change in medical research from 100 years ago to today is when things go wrong, there is really a lot of push towards if this has gone wrong, it's gone wrong due to an accident, not because of someone being deliberately horrendous, usually, mostly. Um, and no matter the cause, we want to stop it happening again. What can we do? OK, any more questions on phase one? No, let's get to phase two. Phase I'm ready. Two. Phase II. II. Um, phase two studies are the first time a patient with the disease is going to get the drug. Unless, of course, it's a cancer drug that was tested in phase zero or phase one, right? Uh, for cancer patients, for example. So 
Uh, in phase one, we're working out, is the drug safe for a healthy person? In phase two, we're looking at, is the drug safe for the patient with the disease? And phase two is where you're going to nail down your therapeutic dose for the people with the disease. So you may do a dose ranging study. You may pick a few doses in that safe window and test those. So the goal of a phase two study is, is the drug safe for the patient with disease? And you're also going to collect some initial data on whether the drug works. Now, the primary goal of phase two is, is the drug safe? The secondary goal is, does it work? Because the real does it work statistical bit comes in phase three, which is a late phase study. Okay. Okay. The patient so phase zero and one are considered early Correct. phase. And phase three is considered late phase. Phase two is middle phase, normal phase. <laughs> I'm going to keep offering suggestions. Um, boring phase, silly phase. <laughs> 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 Debbie likes silly phase. Put, Put it, it in, in the, the books. books. Do you remember that I said at the beginning that we complicated it by saying phase 2A and phase 2B? It has A and yeah. B, yeah. So A is focused specifically on dosing requirements. And usually... If you tell me phase 2A is considered early phase and phase 2B is considered late phase, I'm going to throw well, my chair. get ready. Debbie! Pick up your chair, release, and get to chucking. No! <laughs> Oh, that's stupid. I hate I that. I didn't invent it. That okay. sucks. Phase 2A is when you're okay. going to do your dosing, your, your dosing requirements, your range, your your um, time, etc. Um, phase 2B is when you're going to be looking at uh, does the drug work a little bit more? Not only the safety, but does it, does it work? The initial data on its efficacy. Okay? And the split okay. between early and late phase comes right down the middle of phase 2A and 2B. Hate I'm it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What if you don't do a phase 2A and phase 2... Does everything do 2A and 2B mm. now? Oh, my God. I'm sorry. We're so deep in the weeds. Yeah. Good question. The difficulty with trying... With talking about any of this is we're talking in generalities and there will be specific situations where you don't do that. Generally, yes, you're going to have 2A, 2B. Context matters, Debbie? I don't is know. A thing. Who knew? No, no, I'm American. Right. So the patient population are patients with the disease under investigation, but usually they are patients with a well-controlled, measurable um, type of the disease. OK, the reason being is because you're gathering the first efficacy data and the first safety data in patients, the drug company want to be sure that any change in the patient that they're seeing, improvement or not, is because of the drug. So they try to make sure that you've got a relatively well-controlled type of the disease rather than it's just fluctuating all over the place and it's it's behaving unpredictably. You want patients that behave predictably as much as any human being can be said to behave predictably. The length of the study will be determined by the disease indication. So you have to have enough time in the study for an assessment to be able to be made but you don't want the study to run for a thousand years because, well, then the drug is never going to be able to help any patients. So what I say, what I mean when I say that it, it matches to the indication is something like an asthma study. You will be measuring how many times, for example, the patient has to use their rescue inhaler, the one that they take when they're having an asthma attack to help them out. And depending on the rate at which your patients have asthma attacks, if you run the study over winter when asthma attacks are more likely to occur, 
you may get enough data in three, six months, right? Compared to something like um, an occurrence of a stroke or a heart attack in a patient with high blood pressure, which may take three years for you to get statistically enough data, it may take way longer than that. How long you're going to run the study for depends on what you're measuring as the outcome. Now, if you're looking at blood pressure, if you're looking at a medication that moderates blood pressure, the outcome of that will hopefully be fewer heart attacks and strokes. That's your outcome. But you can use what's called a surrogate endpoint, like the blood pressure measures themselves, because there is a correlation between how high your blood pressure is and for how long, and the likelihood of something like a stroke, a heart attack, etc., occurring. So it may be easier for you to measure blood pressure rather than the occurrence of strokes or heart attacks in phase two. And then in phase three, you're going to measure the occurrence of the events rather than your surrogate measure. Okay. Patient population is enough patients to give statistical significance, which could be 60, could be 200. They're not going to be enormous studies. So probably 200 is, is, you know, a few hundred patients is probably the upper limit. If you have an indication where there are very few patients globally with the disease, your phase three study may only be three patients because statistically that's enough to give you enough data and there just aren't that many patients. Okay. About a third of medications continue past phase two. So we saw 70% get through from phase one to phase two and 33%, about a third, go from phase two to phase three. So the funnel is narrow. That's a huge drop. Yeah, yeah. right. That's, That's because it's relatively easy to prove that a drug is safe. As we said before, you do all that preclinical testing to work out to the best of your ability that it's going to be safe. You're not going to take a drug into a study if you think this is not going to be safe. But some still fail because the human body is a marvellous, wonderful thing. It is harder to prove that the drug is safe in patients who may already have some form of compromised metabolism or, or body function. That's what's what disease is. Something's not functioning the way it should. Additionally, they're looking at the initial efficacy data. So does the drug work? And if it doesn't, they're not going to take it forward into phase three. So you can sometimes tell in phase two... Yes. Or you should be able to tell in phase two at least some efficacy data yeah. at this point. Yeah, yeah. The prelim what we call like what I would call like the preliminary signals of whether it's going to work well or not. Um, and if it's if you see no difference between your active and your placebo, for example, you're not going to go forward to phase three. Because phase three is when things get big and therefore expensive. Cool. Any questions on phase two before we roll on to phase three? Yes. Do you ever have people get a drug in phase two that just like, oh, my God, this cured my whatever? Hmm. Yeah. Yes. So you could see in, in phase one for a cancer drug, you could see it, but you're you're more likely to see it in phase two because that's when the patients get it. So your right. question is really well phrased. Yes. Um, I had a colleague that work, worked on an epilepsy study working with a, a drug based. It's a cannabidiol. So it's based on um a product similar to cannabis, but medically um, targeted for this particular use in epilepsy in children. And um, it was given to patients. And there's one patient, and I remember talking to my colleague about it, and this patient had suffered daily seizures 
um, that's, often more than more than once a day. Yeah, that's awful. Absolutely debilitating. Really affected their quality of life. And then they started this medication as part of this clinical study, and they did not have a seizure while they were on this medicine. Wow. Zero. Oh my god. Life changing for this young kid. Um, and as a result of that, usually what happens is when the study ends, you're put back on the medication you were on before. Um, but in this case, there, there wasn't another medication that worked well for this patient, demonstrably, from the fact that they were having so many seizures. So there was an agreement made. It's called a, it's usually called something like compassionate use. Um, basically, the drug company makes available for the patient this drug because it's it's not ethical to take it off them. This yeah. patient's life was changed by that drug. Wow. Which is not to say that every patient will experience that result with that particular drug or with any drug. But for this patient, it worked. And so it's it's totally the, the wrong thing to do would be to take it away from them. when And then they just go back to having their seizures, probably. Yeah. That would suck. That would suck. But, I mean, that's pretty incredible. And such a different story mm-hmm. compared to the <laughs> the previous kind of case study we delved into of, like these people almost died in phase one to like this kid got to have a much more normal and happy life because of a phase two trial. And that is the variation in clinical research, the bad and the really incredible. And that's why, that's why I do it because you, you see these, these situations of really incredible things happening. Okay. More questions or onto phase three? Onto phase I, I, I. (laughs) phase three are multinational large studies that is where you get um, a big heap of the data that is required to prove that the drug works you're going to get further safety data you collect safety data on you know did the patients have headaches did they have um did their uh did they have um broken bones did they have a high incidence of any kind of thing you collect those safety events all through all of the human studies that you're doing because they can be flags um, for other things that you might not know that are going on. So, for example, if you saw a higher incidence than in the general population of broken bones, it could be that's because your drug is having an impact on bone density or bone brittleness. It could be that your drug is having an impact on patients' blood pressure, so they're getting dizzy and they're falling down the stairs and breaking a leg. So we collect this data on the clinical study and we compare it to the population outside the study and we go are they more or less the same because headaches occur at a rate you're right and if your headaches occur more frequently in your study okay then that's a side effect of the drug so we collect safety data but the main end point the main thing that we're aiming for in phase three is does the drug work these studies have to be very large to get enough data to statistically say yes the drug works in the way that we expected for these patients treating this disease on this dosing regime can be many thousands of patients i worked on a study of over five thousand patients and can run for a number of years a colleague of mine is still working on a cancer study that started 12 years ago And this is why we've talked before about just how long it takes to get a lot of drugs through these phases and to approval. And this is a prime example of it. It is not a quick process because you may be waiting for your patients to have enough heart attacks or strokes or cancer events. 
And until you have those events, you maybe don't have statistical significant data. Okay. Okay. About 54% of medications fail at phase three. Half. That is huge. Yeah. I mean, we went, we narrowed down, we kicked 30 out of phase one, 30% yep. out at phase one. And Two then of the, rem- of yep. the remaining, we kicked out. Yeah. If, if it's a hundred total at the start, yep. we're down to like 70 in phase two. And then quick math on my feet, two thirds, well, no, one third continue past. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. So that's what, like 24, 23, Mm -hmm. 23 Mm -hmm. into phase three, and then 12, 13, 13 to 14 actually make it past phase three. If we started with 100 in our pool. Yeah. And if you think, the development of all of those drugs that fail costs money. Now, for the philosophy, Ravine is a question about the pharmaceutical industry and the amount that they charge for things. Because totally. it is a question that we need to discuss. Today is, is not the day for it because it's, it's a big one. Um, but one of the arguments put forward by the pharmaceutical industry for the amount they need to charge for their drugs is because of the amount that they invest into all of these failed products. And that is, it's often really good research that they're doing. Like we're learning stuff all the time, even if the drug doesn't work, we're learning. Like Viagra didn't work as a drug for blood pressure, but it did work as a drug for erectile dysfunction. Um, Isn't it nice that gender affirming care is something people can have access to? Like Viagra for ED? Yeah, so so important. I think it's really good for people's well-being. Yeah, cisgender men benefit from medicine-based gender affirming care. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Um... So after phase three studies, you're going to collect all of the data that you've got so far from your preclinical, from your early phase, from your late phase studies. You compile it together and you send it off to all of the government regulators that you want to approve your drug. Um, And they will give you an approval, a license or a marketing authorization if they are happy that you've got enough data to say, yes, this drug works. Yes, it's safe at this dose to treat this condition in these um scenarios go ahead put your drug on the market make it available to people regulators can also say nope you've got to go back and research this bit a bit more or i'm not happy that you've done that enough go do some more research things that would make a regulator be like no you didn't do the research right or you didn't because like uh, one thing we've kind of been skirting around is the statistics and like you can make statistics say a lot of things, but it's really how we interpret the data that right like and another question for the philosophy ravine right of like how we interpret data versus like what data says for itself, quote unquote, unquote. Um, but yeah, like can mm. do regulators like kick things back and say it's not that this data sucks, it's that you're presenting it unfairly. Um, so I think there's two parts to that question. And one part is about how the sponsor company designs the protocol to try and get the answer that they want. And they all do, right? A drug company is not going to test a drug in a way that's going to be more likely for it to fail that test. The drug company is going to do everything they can to set the, the drug up to succeed. For example, I said in um, phase two studies, they're going to test it in patients with well-controlled disease, right? 
But in the real world, not everybody's got well-controlled disease, whatever that disease may be. So sometimes what you'll see regulators do is, yeah, cool, you can give it to these patients that you've proven that it works in, but you have to go back and do more research in these other these other population groups. And whether that's you have to go and test it in children or you have to go and test it in pregnant persons or you have to go and test it in people who don't have well-controlled disease, um, that is something that regulators can ask for. Also, if the regulator thinks that the way the protocol is designed isn't adequate to answer the question that the sponsor thinks they're asking, the study won't be approved. The regulator will push back and say, nope, you need to amend your protocol because you're trying to trick us and we're not playing that way. Regulators are not stupid. People at the FDA and the MHRA that I've worked with are some of the most critical minds when they're looking at protocols and they're picking things apart and when they're reviewing that data. So I'm not saying that drug companies are dodgy in what they try and do. Um, they just try and give their drug the best chance of, of working for certain people because they want to get it on the market. They want they want patients to be able to benefit from this thing that works. But the regulators aren't stupid. You, you're not really going to be able to pull the wool over their eyes in that way. Cool. Mm-hmm. Okay. After you've received your license or marketing authorization, as I kind of indicated in the previous answer to your question, research continues. Um, and deliberate research, you, what you can do with your research is you can go back to the beginning. So you can go back to kind of phase two. If you are wanting to expand the use of your licensed drug into new populations... Such as, oh, you know what? This drug works really well in rheumatoid arthritis. I wonder if it works for Crohn's disease, which is uh, a similarly kind of immune modulated um, inflammatory reaction disease. So there's there's often quite a lot of um, situations where you want to expand the label of your drug. Right. So I've got this drug approved for breast cancer. I wonder if it also works for lung cancer. And you've got to prove that by doing more research. So you might take it back into development for a new indication or a new formulation, such as a slow release. Right. Instead of having to take the drug every six hours as a tablet, you take uh, it once and it slow releases over a period of 24 hours. Or you put it in a patch like the quit smoking nicotine slow release patches. Additionally, you can do phase four IV studies. Intravenous. Uh, after <laughs> the not, drug that's receives. It's so not that's something different. Yeah. That's a method of administration, but it's, yes. it's a good joke. Um, Thanks. Phase four studies take place after the drug receives its marketing authorization. Um, and they're often looking at how the drug behaves in the real world. So the patient population now includes anyone's taking the drug, including those who may have less well-controlled disease, or they may have that disease and this other disease. And sometimes you can get really interesting signals or flags from that. Um, these studies can run for many years, for the life of the drug, many millions of patients. But they are deliberate studies with a hypothesis that the drug company is trying to test. So they can take the drug back into development for a new indication. They can continue to research in the real world, phase four, for their existing licensed indications. And they will also continue to collect 
safety report data for any drug out there on the market. That post-marketing surveillance is really important because I said that during the whole clinical development process, you're collecting safety events, headaches, um, broken bones, and anything like a cold counts as yeah. an adverse event in a clinical okay. study, anything, right? But obviously that is in a certain sub part of your patient population of the human population. Whereas when it goes out into the real world, you're going to get so much more data, so many more reports. And an example that you may be aware of here is the AstraZeneca COVID vaccine. Yes. Yeah, because then, like, suddenly people were getting blood clots, specifically women in a certain age group, and, like, that mm. was that didn't show up in trials. My understanding of it is there were a few cases, exactly as you described, of um, the blood clots in the trials, but not at a rate higher than you would usually see in the general population. Um, okay. So it see, didn't I show didn't up as a flag. It's just like, you know what, this happens in the world. Yeah, this just at a rate a of thing that one occurs. in one million mm -hmm. patients. And we've tested it in three million patients, so we've had three events. Something yeah. like that. That's my understanding okay. of it. When we went out and we dosed 50 million patients, we then saw more events that were occurring at a higher rate than you would expect in the general population. And that's what the big red flag waving was for. Um, and it's, it's sometimes difficult in research because correlation, as we know, doesn't necessarily mean causation. Totally. But if you're getting data that says these people who are taking this drug are experiencing this event more than everyone else in the world possibly it's because of the drug and then what the drug company will try and do is is prove causation or disprove causation um and in this case uh we saw that there was a, a higher rate of uh blood clots in yes particularly uh women um sort of younger women sort of 20 to 50s um and so in the UK, for example, where I am, I didn't get the AstraZeneca jab, although my mum did. She's a slightly older than me. I got two doses <laughs> of Pfizer. As that typically happens with mothers and daughters. Mathematically speaking, that's that's how it happens, yeah. That's how age works. Um, as, yeah, so so women below, I think I think the, the tolerance in the UK was 50 or 55, didn't receive AstraZeneca because of the, the risk of these um, right. blood clots. Um, and that is an example of post-marketing surveillance doing exactly what it's meant to do in that these events happened. And I'm not saying that I'm happy that the events happened. I'm not at all. I think that's um, really tragic and very sad. The thing that I always like to point out when people point out the side effects of vaccines is um, causation of blood clots is also a side effect of a COVID infection at a higher rate than happened in the vaccines also a side effect of hormonal contraception at a higher rate than happened in the vaccines also a side effect of just being pregnant at a higher rate than happened in the vaccines so it's when i talk about risk benefit i think it's really important that we always look at the two things together because yeah. there's always a risk you can't remove risk from every situation but you're trying to outweigh the benefit and like if you're the sort of person that wants to have children 
you're going to take the risk of potentially having a blood clot because you want to have that baby. And there's things that you can sure. do to, to manage that, you know, if you can be active and get good sleep and such. And similarly, if you're on hormonal contraception, you may um, have a checkup with your doctor every six months or a year and they'll take your blood pressure to make sure that it's, you know, not too high. And they'll, you know, they'll check all of these other things that they can look at to make sure that you're not suffering um, too much. But I, I always think when we're talking about side effects, it's really important to keep it in context. Because if the thing that you are treating is um, fatal to a certain percentage, then you have to expect that the drug that you're using to treat that may also have some side effects. Right. Yeah. Okay, Elise, any further questions? Always, but currently for the present topics no wow okay um would you like to tell us what you remember from today then give us a quick okay there are four phases except there's really six phases because there's (laughs) phase zero and there's phase 2a and phase 2b um (laughs) and phase zero is something the fda said could be a thing some people do and it is a thing some people do but it's not mandatory and it microdoses healthy patients Mm -hmm. to see what the metabolic the p k and pd or something like that which if you ask me what do those words mean i don't remember but it has to do with how the drug metabolizes in your body and how Mm, something else um yep so it's like something pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics okay (laughs) yeah i was gonna say psychodynamics and i was like no but i live (laughs) in behavioral health world Uh so i didn't explain this at the time i just i said the words and then i said oh it's you know the body metabolizing and and then i moved on let me explain it now sorry pharmacokinetics is the movement of the drug through the body pharmacodynamics is what the body responds with so pharmacokinetics is like the digestion the metabolism the breakdown of the drug pharmacodynamics is what the body's biological response is okay so like little immuno flare-ups or something yeah 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 cool Mm -hmm. um so phase zero is intended to yeah basically give us data on how the drug moves through the body and how the body responds to the drug at microdoses. And then in phase one or phase I, um, you uh, bring healthy patients in and you give them doses. You can do dose scaling studies in healthy patients, but you give them doses that you expect to actually have therapeutic benefit. um, And it's mostly just to determine, is it safe? And that's, uh, Mm -hmm. that's the big question is like, can we give this to humans without hurting them in horrible ways Mm -hmm. phase two uh which is both early and late phase studies depending on a or b (laughs) a or b um you start to give the oh and all of this is the caveat of sometimes it's not healthy people it's cancer patients or people with certain Mm -hmm. illnesses or drugs that would treat illnesses that the drug treatment or the therapy is um has no benefit but terrible risks for people who are healthy. Anyway, yes. uh phase two, you start um dosing patients with the disease and you test is it safe for them? Mm-hmm. And it can also give you preliminary 
efficacy data. And these are usually smaller and faster, but it depends on the indication, a word Mm. I figured out through context clues what you meant by it. Uh, Yeah, indication is like the disease or syndrome under investigation, under treatment. And like how we tell that it's happening in humans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like the things that it makes present in a human. The the signs or symptoms. Signs or symptoms, yes. Um, okay. And then in phase three, you have a much bigger, usually multinational data set. Um, and they last a lot longer Mm -hmm. and they have to prove not only safe, but also effective. Yes. Um, and they... Uh, tend, yeah, they tend to be longer, although, again, it depends on the indication, but that's because you need a lot mm-hmm. more data from a lot more people and statistically be able to prove that this is different. You collect mm-hmm. a lot of safety data of other occurrences of things like broken bones and stuff. Um, yep. And then if it gets past phase three, it becomes marketable and... The it goes to the regulator for them to Sorry. say that it's marketable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, right. Yes. Yeah. That's what I guess I meant by if it gets past phase three. Yeah, but yeah, yes, yeah, you're right. It's the Sorry. same. You're right. It's the same thing. Um, and an important distinction that that's what that means. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so if, if the regulators approve at the end of phase three, it gets a license to be mm, out in the world. Yes. And then it can be prescribed or otherwise given from. Administered. Yes administered and uh phase four is now it's out in the world and we keep studying it to know more about how it's affecting people now that we have this huge endless well okay endless is the wrong word much bigger much more diverse uh much less controlled population of people encountering the drug absolutely brilliant well done thanks Okay, that's going to do it for us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast. If you have any questions or just would like to get in touch with us, you can email us at clinical.research.intro at gmail.com. Please do subscribe so you get the next episode automatically. And of course, please rate and review. You can also check out the Clinical Research 101 Instagram page on Instagram at clinical.research.intro. Um, That's got a whole bunch of information. I've been running that for more than a year now, I think. So there's going to be a whole bunch of stuff up there that you can check out. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye from me, Debbie. Say goodbye, Elise. Goodbye, Elise.